Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I hope you all listening are holding up out there. I know many of us are suffering from cabin fever and, you know, just ready to go outside and have a good old-fashioned summer. I know I am. I'm a summer baby, so I usually look forward to taking my summer vacation during my birthday week, which is falls in July. And oftentimes I travel. However, unfortunately, I'm not one of, you know, these brave people ready to jump on a plane just yet, you know, during all this pandemic business. But I have been thinking of where I would go if outside was open fully and that place would be, drum roll, New York City, of course. There's just something about the energy of New York City in the summer that I've just always loved since, you know, the first time I visited, which was in the 90s. But since I can't travel there, I thought the perfect film to chat about on this episode of Blase Blah Film Chat is I Like It Like That, which is set in the South Bronx neighborhood of New York City. I Like It Like That was written and directed by Darnell Martin and released in 1994. I'm pretty excited to finally get around to discussing this film. One, because it's the first film directed by a woman that I've featured on this podcast. And that decision wasn't intentional per se. Um, It just kind of happened because I've kind of chosen films just depending on the type of mood or headspace I'm in around the time that I want to record and you know just the first few films have sort of reflected that. But alas I'm ready to discuss this masterful debut film by Miss Darnell Martin. This film is special to me Because up until its release in the 90s, the main black filmmakers that I looked up to were pretty much men like Spike Lee, John Singleton, Keenan Ivy Wayans, um, Melvin Van Peebles, and of course, you know, the Steven Spielbergs. But I remember reading about Darnell Martin being the first African-American woman to direct a film produced by a major film studio, which was Columbia Pictures. And that was just so amazing to me at the time. And it kind of solidified me wanting to attend film school because at that point, you know, I had proof that a black woman, 
she could do it. She could be, you know, become a successful director in Hollywood. So, you know, that dream just kind of seemed real with the release of this film, I Like It Like That. In addition to I Like It Like That, Darnell has directed other feature films such as Prison Song, which featured Q-Tip and Mary J. Blige, as well as Cadillac Records. Um, I believe she wrote and directed Cadillac Records, um, which starred the one and only Beyonce Knowles. She's also directed television on shows such as Law and Order, Grey's Anatomy, and The Walking Dead. So she's been able to keep busy throughout the years. However, I feel like I like it like that. I would say is the signature film which so showcases her unique point of view as a filmmaker. One of the things that makes it so unique is her showcasing Afro-Latino life in New York City, which wasn't often portrayed, you know, in a, a nuanced way in film at the time, I feel like. Martin, from what I research, she's not Afro-Latina herself. So it would be interesting to know what inspired her to write, you know, a story with the lead protagonist as an Afro-Latina. But I'd assume um, living in New York City or growing, I believe she was raised there, she was exposed to the culture and felt familiar enough to tell this story. And... I think it was a good choice. So without further ado, let's get into this episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I want to break down the opening sequence of this film because I think it's so memorable because it immediately draws the viewer in and sets the tone and pace of the entire film. It just creates an energy that is kept up throughout the film, which I think um, can be hard to do. But it's one of those films that it just immediately gives you nostalgia of a specific place and time. The camera opens up on a shot of a Latina woman leaning over her balcony writing her number on a $5 bill to place a bet with the neighborhood numbers man. Another woman is shaking a rug out of her window as the camera then pans down and settles on who we will learn is Alexis. She comes out of the building and stops to speak with the lady and her baby. Alexis is played by the actor Jesse Borrego. For those of us who are old enough to remember the TV show Fame, he played the character um, Jesse. So he's one of those really good dancers 
from that show. He's been in a lot of stuff since then, though. But he's playing a transgender woman in this particular film. So the camera is still moving. We settle on two guys trying to holler at two young ladies who hop out of a Jeep, which pulls up, and the camera lands on a spray-painted mural of a police officer named Hector Linares on a wall. It says he was killed by a drug dealer. There's this sort of fast camera movement in this opening sequence, which it just mimics the fast-paced life of New York City. It shows what a busy, bustling block looks like in the Bronx. But this energy is energy that can be found in the other boroughs too. So, you know, Harlem or Brooklyn are just as lively. This is such a great flashback to 1990s New York, um, you know, where you see people you know, just packed on the block, having fun, socializing, you know, speaking on payphones, kids having fun, running down the street. We then abruptly cut to a shot of Lizette Linares, played by Laura Velez, in bed having intense sex as her husband, Chino, how do I say this nicely? Let's just say he's, you know, putting his back into it. As he picks up a clock and he notes out loud that it's been 89 minutes that they have been having sex. Their kids are in the living room making a loud racket, twisting the doorknob and trying to push the scarf, you know, through the keyhole. There's a cut to a medium shot of Chino stroking away on top of Lizette doing a little dance we call the WAP back in the day to the chance of Golchino as his friends cheer him on outside. Um, they're standing under an open window. Um, all the while, there's a downstairs neighbor who is going crazy, pounding a broom on the ceiling, reacting to all the noise that, you know, Lizette and Chino are making with their love making. I like the specific shot detail when we cut to a shot under the bed to see the dust jumping up from the wood floor, you know, as the broom um, hits the ceiling. There's a cut to a shot of Lizette's upper body and head hanging off the side of the bed. In this up-down shot of her, she's seeming somewhat exasperated. Um, we then cut to a shot from Lizette's perspective, being bounced on the bed with the camera swinging back and forth with an upside-down view of the window looking out on the apartment building across the street. So that's just a really good perspective shot that I really, you know, love. 
we're introduced to Maggie, aka Magdalena, who's sitting outside on the stoop with the crowd of guys who are cheering Chino on and her kind of being a hater. She throws a bottle up at the window um, to kind of interrupt what's going on. Lizette becoming tired of this marathon sex sex capade flips Chino over and starts to ride him on top to make him climax as their kids are banging on the door. We see a close-up um, of Lizette concentrating. Then we cut to an overhead shot of Lizette as Chino has the clock in his hand. When Lizette finally achieves an orgasm, she leans back with her head to face the camera. And, you know, she gives this money shot climax face as Chino is able to hold on and not climax to keep his record. The camera overhead moves in close to show Chino's smiling reaction as, you know, we see he's kept his record. I break down this scene in such detail just because every shot and editing choice is so intentional and well thought out. When I watch how all of these aspects of filmmaking are executed, it gives me such an appreciation for the art of directing. You know that the director has a firm understanding of, you know, just how films work and and what, you know, the film language is and you can just tell that, you know, this director just cares. It reminds me of the retro filmmaking before all of the modern technology where shot selections were very symbolic because you couldn't rely on, you know, fancy effects. Like um like the shower scene um where Janet Lee is stabbed in psycho. You don't see the knife ever penetrate her body but it's just as scary because you have all of these intense shots of the shower head as the water streaming out, this arm, you know, doing the stabbing motion with the knife, her pulling down the curtains and the rod snapping um, as she falls down. And then... You know, there's this close-up of the water going down the drain. They're like all these symbolic shots that, you know, the director, Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock, had to make. And he didn't rely on, you know, showing a lot of gore and that sort of thing. Because, um, of course, it would have looked cheesy back in the day, but still. He didn't have those things to fall back on. So here, I'm not saying that, you know, this film is, you know, Hitchcockian in, you know, any way. But I'm just commenting on Miss Martin's purposeful directing and shot selections. And this 
This is also an intense opening sex scene to feature a Black and Latino couple just expressing their love for each other or just intimacy um, on one hand, but also, you know, as a married couple. Because I think that's something you don't see in mainstreams, mainstream films a lot, you know, when it comes to portraying Black and Latino couples just being intimate and making love in this sort of way. It's also interesting to see how parents are able to, you know, be intimate while the kids are around. So I think it's kind of amazing that, you know, these two, they're still in the mood for sex with all of that racket going on, you know, just in the next room. But I guess, you know, just in real life, you have to get it. Parents have to get it, you know, when you can. And here's a perfect um, example showing that. So moving on, just as Lizette and Chino are exhaling from exhaling from climaxing. We cut to a shot of the young brother and sister in hand-to-hand combat, tussling just right outside their bedroom door. The couple come out to see their young kids, a boy and a girl, tearing up the house and fighting. Chino scolds them as Lizette rushes to gather up her broken record player and speakers. She's like devastated. Chino, he asks his son, little Chino, what he's told him in regards, you know, to fighting his sister. And little Chino replies, if I hit someone smaller than me, that makes me a punk. This use of the P word is interesting here because Chino is trying to give his son a lesson on how to treat the opposite sex. But I think it foreshadows how masculinity is dealt with in this family and how this father in this film will kind of pass on harmful messaging to his son while also trying to teach him and groom him to become a man. So I think that's just kind of interesting foreshadowing for what's to come later on in the film. Maggie, or as she's also called Magdalena, who seems to have a crush on Chino, knocks on their door and Chino answers it to see her standing there and she's a sexy temptress type which is the total opposite of Lisette and Maggie she's played by Lisa Vidal you might remember her from the TV show Being Mary Jane she played Mary Jane's friend and producer And it's funny because 
when I would watch that show, Lisa always had a kind of uh, familiarness about her, but I could never place where I knew her from. And, ta-da, it wound up being this film that I had seen years before. So anyways, Maggie, she's at the door. She innocently explains that she just came to show Chino. His number almost hit. Fed up with the disrespectful flirting between the two and just all of the chaos of her apartment and her kids just out of hand, Lizette flees downstairs to see Alexis, who is her kind of safe haven when she needs to vent or her kind of shoulder to cry on. We learn that Alexis is actually Lizette's sister. As Lizette looks through a newspaper to find a new radio, Alexis encourages her to pursue her modeling to make some money. An idea that Chino shoots down later because as he puts it, Lisette doesn't have any tetas. So eventually a blackout winds up happening and looting breaks out in the neighborhood. Lizette warns Chino not to join in with the looting, but he does anyway in an effort to get her that stereo that she wants. We cut from a shot of him lighting a cigarette and saying, Chino don't get busted, to Chino banging and yelling on the visitor glass in jail across from Lizette. She tries to assure him she'll bail him out and tries to calm his panic in a pretty funny scene. Chino's bail is $1,500 and Lizette, she pleads with um, his friend Angel for the money as well as to Alexis. However, Alexis is saving her money for her sex reassignment surgery, and so she just isn't moved. So Lizette now has to decide whether to play the only $5 she has on Chino's numbers with the numbers guy or not. Lizette and Alexis they decide to go find their mother who is working on a street food cart. Again, I like this camera choice of the director. Starting with a shot of Alexis peeking through a chain link fence, then doing the reversal shot of the mother sitting at the food cart then the camera there's a panning down to show alexis and lizette kneeling plotting um their move to talk um, with their mother since their father is not there alexis is she's too scared to approach her mother because she doesn't think she looks good um, you know, she rushed out of the house without doing her makeup and her, her, her blouse just doesn't really fit right. So she thinks 
um, she asks, you know, which picture she should um, give Lizette to give to their mother. And Lizette, you know, she responds, you know, whichever one you don't um, mind getting ripped up. So Alexis gives Lizette a picture and then she watches um, through the fence as Lizette um, walks over and tries to ask her mother for the money. So as she predicted, the mother rips up the picture, you know, saying this isn't her son. She warns Lizette that if her brother, quote unquote brother, keeps calling the house, his father is going to go over there and kick his ass. The father then approaches and we see that he's a Jamaican black man and the mother, she's a, I guess you describe her as a fair-skinned Puerto Rican woman. So this is interesting to see the dynamics of an interracial family um, and couple from the black and Latino perspective in film because usually we see you know, a black and white couple if there's, you know, when discussing interracial relationships, you know, in the media. So I think that's, this is a, a pretty interesting um, dynamic. And also Darnell Martin's tackling of the transgender experience in this film, I think was pretty progressive for the time. I can't think of too many depictions of a black and Latino transgender woman in a feature film where her storyline was central to the overall plot. Although I don't think Jesse Borrego is Afro-Latino in real life, I believe he identifies as a non-black Latino. Um, for my research, but don't quote me on that. Now, of course, judging by today's standards, it would be more appropriate to have an actual transgender woman, you know, playing the character of Alexis. But I feel here, Jesse Borrego, he gave a compelling performance in the role. However, you know, I can't speak to whether it was, you know, a totally authentic performance because, you know, that would be up to someone from, you know, the transgender community to be the judge of that. But Darnell Martin, she did make a good effort to show, I think, a holistic look at this one transgender woman's experiences and journey. It's nice to see that she owns her own botanica shop and, you know, she lives in a cute apartment, which goes against stereotype. We don't see her in an intimate relationship, but we do get to see her complicated relationship um, that she has with her parents who refuse to accept her. Um, she does seemingly have a sort of acceptance by her sibling, Lizette, but we see in several arguments 
Lizette and that, you know, Lizette and Alexis have. Lizette, she tends to um, make insensitive comments toward Alexis, you know, referring to her SRS or, you know, just referring to certain aspects of womanhood. And I think this could be a realistic banter that might happen between siblings, you know, especially in the kind of non-woke 90s. But it does make me wonder if this were written in more recent years, if Martin, you know, would make the same choices or if she would, you know, she if she would make different choices. But I don't know. I, I'm not one of those people who feel like you should judge a film by today's standards, you know? So, you know, I'm judging it by 1990s standards. And I think for that time, um, Martin was trying to be progressive in her thinking and portraying this film and this particular character. But moving on, we find that little Chino has started to fall into the wrong crowd since his father has been locked up. We cut to a scene where the kids are at their grandmother's house and Lizette asks little Chino, you know, about stealing a car from the local bodega. Um, she then lights a candle over a picture of Chino and says a prayer. I'm not sure if this is solely an Afro-Latin tradition or if this pulls from the Catholic church tradition or maybe both. But I like how it's not portrayed in a, you know, mystical Hollywood fashion. But little Chino, he gets frustrated by not knowing where his father is and picks up the candle and throws it, causing Lizette to blow up and tell him that his father is in jail. Rita Moreno, um, who is she's introduced in this scene and she's playing the grandmother or um, Chino's mother. So she's essentially the mother-in-law from hell in this film and she gets mad that um Lizette is talking bad about her son to the kids and she just explodes and leaves what a feat it must have been for Martin to get the legendary EGOT Rita Moreno to star in this film and for those who don't know what um, an EGOT is, that just means that she won an Emmy Award, she won a Grammy Award, she's an Oscar winner, and she um, is a Tony Award winning actress. So she, you know, is in this small club of persons to have won all four of those major awards. She only has a few scenes, but she makes the most of them. 
giving a highly entertaining performance as, you know, one of those overly protective mothers who spoils their son's rotten and thinks their grown son can do absolutely no wrong. But this takes us to an intense breakdown scene as Lizette goes into the bathroom and turns on the radio, uh, lights the cigarette as the kids are outside of the door, the bathroom door, asking for their father. The neighbor is banging the broom against the floor again. And Lizette is just kind of in her own world, rocking back and forth. She places the couple dollars and change that she has on the sink in front of her and starts to sing along to the radio. There's a quick montage of shots of the floor tiles bouncing, the banging from the neighbor and the kids, and her cigarette dropping, um, and her grabbing her head and just rocking. She's at her breaking point at this moment. She starts banging back on the floor with a mop. Then, as a release of frustration, she starts dancing around the tiny bathroom using the mop as a microphone while Mark Anthony's vocals blare from the radio with the poster of Cela Cruz on the wall. There's kind of a claustrophobic feeling in this tiny bathroom. Then there's a cut to a shot overhead of her leaning against the door, just catching her breath. Then we cut to her opening the door as she's gotten herself together to confront her kids and answer their questions. She threatens to whoop her son for stealing and her son tells her, Poppy stole that stereo. Are you saying he's not a man? She sinks to the floor behind the couch, not knowing how to respond, and tells her son she needs him to grow up for a minute and help her out while their father is gone. Without saying anything, little Chino pushes the car that he stole along the back of the couch and he hands it to her. This is a good example of the powerful performance that Lauren Velez gives throughout this film. She gave such a convincing performance showing the levels to a complete mommy meltdown and you know just being on the verge of insanity. She shows how women have to figure out a way to vent and let out frustration, but then calm down and pull it together for their family. And again, the directing and shot selections and edits here, Martin masterfully built this powder keg of tension in this scene, and I just love it. I think it's just it's it's so classic of a of a movie scene. Next scene we see that Lizette has uh 
sucked it up and decided to take Alexis's advice and she coaches Lizette on how to walk with a stuffed bra and loans her fake breast cutlets so that she can pursue this modeling opportunity. Cut to Lisette walking into the modeling agency and sure enough, one of the cutlets, their breast cutlets, slips down um, out of her shirt in front of one of the other models. Lisette almost misses her shot at the job, but she's crafty and she pitches herself to a record exec in the elevator for a job as arm candy at a meeting to sign a group who goes by the name of the Menendez brothers. Meanwhile, Chino's number winds up hitting and he misses out on wins of $6,000 because Lizette went to the modeling agency instead of playing his $5 with the numbers man. She visits him in jail to tell him and he doesn't want her to take the job with the Menendez brothers, basically out of jealousy. He'd rather her go on welfare. This leads Lizette to asking Chino if he's ever been with Magdalena and he of course denies it. Cut to a scene in the bodega that Magdalena's father owns. Lizette is trying to buy diapers and soap with food stamps. This just turns into an argument and winds up being the breaking point along with little Chino offering to get work with a local drug dealer, Lizette finally decides to just pawn her wedding ring and to take the job meeting the Menendez brothers. This is also where the movie takes a big turn for me aesthetically. We're leaving the sort of vibrant colors and culture of this Bronx neighborhood and entering a more dull and gray artificial world of corporate America and the music business. So Lizette arrives at the restaurant to meet Mr. Price who is the record executive trying to sign the Mendes, the Menendez brothers. She winds up turning this one-time gig into a full-time position after she impresses the Menendez brothers with her ideas um, and her looks, much to Mr. Price's dismay. But she reveals that she has her ears to the, sh to the musical streets and he offers her a job just because he likes that she's a hustler. Meanwhile, Magdalena and Angel take note of Lizette getting out of Mr. Price's Lamborghini after he gives her a ride home. Mama Linares, again played by Rita Moreno, 
visits Chino in jail and she reveals that she spoke to Magdalena and her baby is Chino's. Mr. Soto, her father, has agreed to bail Chino out if he gives the baby his last name. Chino refuses because he says the baby is not his. But Mama Linares thinks he should take Magdalena and her father's offer because he's opening a new bodega and Chino can be the manager. She's knowingly wanting him to basically up and leave his actual family for one that she knows is not his. Is that a hint of colorism showing up? This is a really important issue that plays out in the Latino community as well as the black community. And this is just another social issue that Martin does a good job at interweaving in the storyline, which again, I think shows, you know, just how she's progressive in her storytelling for the time. A game of telephone breaks out when Chino's friends come to visit him and exaggerate about seeing Lizette getting out of the Lamborghini. They tell him that they think she's been having sex with her boss. This is the beginning of an awakening for Chino. His lack of a job and philandering ways may have driven his wife away. Did he take her for granted? He doesn't seem like he thought she'd ever be unfaithful, even though he was. While Lizette is making coffee on a photo shoot, Mr. Price asks for her advice about an artist. She steps up and makes changes to the lighting and the artist's wardrobe. We see her evolving at her job as a montage of Chino in jail and little Chino out on the street dealing with peer pressure from the neighborhood boys. Chino gets out of jail and decides to get with Magdalena. Lizette is not the defeated woman locked in her bathroom at this moment in time. She's recognizing her power but with the empowerment of being a career woman comes the oftentimes sexual harassment and inappropriateness from her male colleagues. Here, Mr. Price takes the opportunity to ask her about wearing her wedding ring and she assures him she's always, she always wears it because she's always married. Lizette comes home and finds Chino sitting on the stoop of the brownstone with Magdalena all, you know, hugged up on him in his face, surrounded by his neighborhood friends. He confronts Lizette and asks her, you know, how could she do this to him? Um, referring to supposedly cheating with Mr. Price or with her boss. Lizette admits that she got dropped off at four in the morning, but she didn't have sex with Mr. Price. I like this shot where Chino, he grabs Lizette by the arm and pulls her in front of him with 
his back against the wall. So he pulls her to him. The camera follows them with a pro with a profile shot of them of the two, and the camera stays on them as Magdalena carrying her baby on her hip and Mama Linares. They creep into the shot in the background. We see Magdalena basically watching her future drifting away as Lizette and Chino try to reconcile. We see her plan didn't seem to work. Or both of their plans. It, It doesn't seem to be working. So Magdalena decides to bust up Lizette and Chino's kiss. And she tries to thrust her baby on Chino, still not giving up. The block erupts into chaos, trying to keep the two women apart as they begin the fight. Lizette gets fed up and throws her ring at Chino and screams, you know, at the whole block that she actually has a life and a job and Magdalena can actually have Chino for all she cares. Chino tries to embrace Lizette, but she pulls away. So she might be done at this point. Cut to Lizette fluffing an artist before at a performance before he goes on stage. Mr. Price moves in and tries to sweet talk her with a glass of champagne. And you know, he mentions that he notices she's not wearing her wedding ring. They have an awkward exchange where he tries to basically push up on her, touching her hair and telling her he's glad she's there. He awkwardly goes in for a kiss, but she pushes him away and, you know, she tells him she's married. Now, this is a good example of where the power dynamic of a male boss comes into play when his subordinate is a woman. I like that the writer and director are female here because the nuances of how these situations are played out are very realistic here. Because oftentimes this same scenario when presented from a male point of view, it would have shown a lot of, it would have likely shown Lizette's character to have been flattered and, you know, or even maybe grateful for her boss's attention and you know it might have shown her throwing herself at him but here you know like I think it is um oftentimes in real life it's just awkward and uneasy so Lizette comes home and Chino he has put the kids down for sleep he gives her a candle and cactus as a gift and a peace offering, you know, while there's music playing in the background. He's promised their daughter a puppy if she comes out and tells her mother that she woke up from a dream that she had where her daddy had, or I think she called him Poppy, had left and never came back. This quickly ruins the mood as Lizette figures out that Chino set this up. 
She tells Chino to leave the house and tries to make him leave, but he refuses. He then forces her and her son in the bathroom and locks them in there in an effort to calm her down. There's shots back and forth between the two of them arguing about the state of their marriage. They're both throwing jabs back and forth with Chino criticizing her sex skills and her telling him that he isn't a man. As Chino pulls the door closed, Lizette, she's pulling it, trying to open it. She finally tricks him into thinking she's calmed down and he lets her out and she rushes past him to go to Alexis's apartment, her kind of safe haven. Cut to a scene on a new day where there's chaos in the house, even more so without Lizette there. Chino struggles to comb his daughter's hair. He asks his mother, Mrs. Linares, if she can help him, you know, with his daughter's hair. And she pauses and says, I don't know how to comb nappy heads. Nobody in my family has nappy hair. Why would you marry a woman with nappy hair? So, yep, bingo. As I suspected earlier, Miss... Mrs. or Mama Linares is definitely colorstruck, or you might refer to her as being a colorist. Again, I think it's so important that this issue is presented in this fashion because, you know, it's not heavy-handed here, and oftentimes it comes across that colorism isn't really acknowledged within the Latino community as being a huge problem. Um, It's kind of a dirty little secret, but plagues that community in the same form and fashions as it does in the African-American community and other Black communities here and abroad. So I really love that Darnell Martin tackled that subject here in just a very kind of natural and fluent, fluid kind of a way. Little Chino, getting back to this scene, Little Chino, he's struggling with his grandmother to put on a pair of what she says are dirty jeans. He talks back to his father and says he's a man and refuses to put on his clothes and just sits in front of the TV continuing to watch cartoons. Out of frustration, Chino hits him with a belt. Little Chino responds saying, you're not a man, you're hitting someone littler than you. Little Chino, here he flips Big Chino's words on him. Chino tells him that okay, since he's a man, then he can take off the clothes that he bought him. Chino forces him to take off his clothes and pushes him outside of the apartment into the hallway naked. This next scene is one of those that get burned into your memory well after you've seen the entire film. I list this as One of the more powerful scenes in a film, I think I've seen dealing with the loss of childhood innocence and I guess the beginning of 
adolescence. We cut to a close shot of the black apartment door. Then the camera pans down to see little Chino staring at the hard slam door in his face. Then there is a transition to a long shot down the hallway as little Chino stands outside the door naked along this harshly painted red wall. The composition of this shot is both jarring and powerful. We see him stripped down. We see him stripped down literally and figuratively. And he's far from a man. He looks like a helpless baby. And there's a sad realization in his face that little Chino, he sees that too. He's he's realizing that in the moment. The camera pulls out and little Chino turns to knock on the door. Great detail and camera positioning as the camera is pointing up at Chino to show that we are seen from little Chino's point of view, looking up at his dad. He lectures him that he's not a man yet and tells him he better put on the pants until he's old enough to take care of himself. Big Chino is waking up to his responsibilities. He sees his wife no longer respects him and now his son isn't looking at him like a man. Things have forever changed between this father and son. The next scene, Lizette is back at the office. She finally gives into Mr. Price's advances. Before she lets him have sex though, she makes him take his watch off because She doesn't want to be on a timer like she does, like she is when she's having sex with Chino. This scene shows a change in Lisette's self-awareness. Not that she's really into Mr. Price, but she wants to explore sexually and disregard the societal norms of what a doting wife is supposed to be She's crossed a boundary in her marriage now and there's no going back to the way it used to be. Later, Lizette sees Magdalena from outside of the window of Alexis's shop and she sees that Chino has given her cactus plant to Magdalena. Here is when Lizette realizes Chino is now working for Maggie's dad and he's starting a new life without her. She decides to confront him and she gives him the condom wrapper from her sexual encounter with Mr. Price and she tells him that basically they're even now. Chino is devastated that his worst fears are confirmed. He tells her that she's fucked up their family and you know never mind the fact that he's doing the exact same thing with Magdalena back at the bodega Chino has fell into we see that he's fallen into 
fatherhood with his newly claimed child from Magdalena. And he's watching a baby while also stocking groceries as his friends tease him. Chino says the best thing that a woman can give a man is a baby. And Magdalena, she overhears this and she starts to feel bad. She finally admits to her father that Chino isn't the baby's father. And she says she basically just wanted her child to have a good father like she has with Mr. Soto. So moving on, Chino sits outside on the block with his baby and daughter eating an ice cream when little Chino approaches asking for some. Big Chino tells him that he doesn't have the money to, you know, buy his own ice cream and that he can take, you know, some of theirs. A taste of um, the ice cream that they're sharing. Little Chino pulls out some money and says, you know, he has his own money and he'll go get his own. And, you know, he says that he didn't get the money stealing. It's a little odd that Big Chino doesn't question right away where Little Chino got this money. Because, again, he's only like 9 or 10. But there is something in Big Chino that wants to hang on to this fatherly bond that he has with his son and he forces little Chino to give him a hug in front of all all of his friends right there on the street. Afterwards, the little sister playing the typical instigator role points out that little Chino has on new clothes to her dad. Here is when Big Chino realizes that little Chino's new clothes and sneakers have probably come from him working for the neighborhood drug dealer. Chino takes off his belt and rushes over to pull down little Chino's pants and starts whipping him in front of his friends and the whole neighborhood while pushing his face up against the wall to see the article in front of the mural of the slain officer. Chino reveals that this lane officer is his uncle. Alexis runs up and rescues little Chino and begs for Big Chino to stop hitting him. The neighborhood chants loud as Chino grabs one of the neighborhood boys laughing at little Chino and he starts to spank him too in front of the mirror. The boy pulls out a gun and Chino easily knocks it away and begins to whip him as the neighborhood cheers. The boy begins to cry and starts to, through his cries, yell out, you're not my father. Chino lets him go and is left standing there crying against the mural himself with the belt in his hand. This is another interesting scene exploring the lack of father figures amongst black and brown young men. A message in this film seems to be that, you know, the role of the father is ultimately to be 
the disciplinarian. Thinking back when Lizette couldn't bring herself to whip little Chino after she found out he was stealing from the bodega, she needed Chino out of jail to be the one to confront their son, you know, as he got rebellious. Without a father figure, the message is that brown and black youth fall into drug dealing and gangs, or they more easily do so. And here, Big Chino is just trying his hardest to make sure little Chino, you know, doesn't become a statistic and fall into that lifestyle. While I applaud Martin tackling the complex dynamics of a father and son relationship here and showing how important the presence and influence of a father can have on a young boy. Something about how she depicted the mother being totally incapable of disciplining her son and I guess him, the son showing a lack of regard or respect for her authority just kind of perplexed me a little bit. Like, why is she such a pushover to her son? But I guess because she lets his father run over her, he's grown up seeing this, so maybe he's following what he's seen in the home. Maybe that's the type of thing that's going on here. I don't know. Just a thought. But so Lizette finds little Chino sitting outside of Alexis's door in just his t-shirt when she gets home. And he says that he wants to stay with his mother. Alexis tries to convince Lizette to take him in and Lizette leaves him there saying she's tired of being played as a fool. Big Chino finds little Chino sleeping in the hallway and he picks him up and brings him inside the home. And then once inside the apartment, Big Chino's friend Angel is there And Angel finally admits to Chino that he's actually the father of Magdalena's kid and not Chino, which Chino he's known all the time. So we cut back to Alexis's place and she and Lizette get into an argument over little Chino. Lizette tells her that She won't know how to be a mother, no matter how much silicone she gets in her body. Alexis tells her that she can identify with being a little boy whipped in the street and made to feel less than a man. Alexis tells her that Lizette is being selfish just like their mom and that she shouldn't abandon her son because he's you know dealing drugs since after all he's still a small child 
Alexis also says that their mom pretends that no one else exists and she only cares about herself. Lisette then tells Alexis that it's her fault that she's not living to make herself happy and basically she should stop blaming their mother. This is an important scene because Alexis is seeing herself in Little Chino when she was a child. Based on what she said about being whipped as a little boy, we can guess that she was whipped by either her father or mother over her identity at a young age. And while Lizette is rejecting her parenting advice, Alexis is actually able to give her genuine and sound advice on how to connect with her child. And, you know, just letting her know that she shouldn't so easily discard him because of his acting out. But it also seems that Alexis does take heed to Lizette's comment about not living to make herself happy and decides to get some closure once and for all with her parents. She sits in the mirror and starts to make herself up. In the next scene, Alexis shows up at their mother's house dressed in a gown and looking glamorous. She tells her mother she's going to get an operation to be a real woman Her mother freaks out and tells her to go away, but Alexis enters the apartment anyway, just as her father emerges from a back room. Cut to a new scene where Alexis comes back home. She has a black eye and bruised face. She breaks down and says her parents hate her. You know, she tells Lizette that she's just like their mom. Lizette embraces her and, you know, assures her that she's not like her mom. And, you know, it's not just about screw everybody else and, you know, just going for her own wants and desires. It's interesting that Alexis is really torn by her mother's non-acceptance of her life choices a little bit more than the father's non-acceptance. Perhaps she feels that at least with her mother's support, the father would come around to accepting her as she is. Or maybe it's just the basic belief that a mother couldn't reject their own child that they gave birth to. Either way, Borrego gives a heartbreaking performance here. He seems to have really dug into his acting bag to portray Alexis in a very heartfelt way. Which again, tackling LGBTQ issues in 1994 was pretty forward-thinking on Martin's behalf in this way, I think. 
So after this scene, Lizette goes home to her apartment and checks on her kids sleeping. She finds little Chino has made a little pallet in the closet and he's peeking out as his mother is sitting on his sister's bed. She tells him that she's never going to leave him no matter what and asks for his forgiveness. It's really powerful seeing little Chino in his oversized baggy clothes. Even for the time where, you know, baggy clothes were in and holding he's holding an action figure toy as his mom begs for his forgiveness and embraces him for a hug. The camera pans over and we see Chino out of focus observing in the background from the doorway. After a chaotic morning where Chino deals with the kids as Lizette goes to work, that night, Lizette, later on that night, Lizette and Chino have a heart-to-heart about both of their indiscretions outside of their marriage. And she tells him his problem is that he never thinks about the other person. They have a sort of meeting of the minds, but this isn't a Hollywood ending where, you know, they kiss and make passionate love. Rather, Chino makes a thoughtful gesture by picking up a blanket and laying it over her as she lies on the couch to sleep. And Lizette looks at her wedding ring hanging from her necklace and she falls asleep as Chino, he goes into the bedroom to go to sleep. And then the film cuts to black. The credits run as the video outtakes for the Menendez Brothers video shoot plays showing all of Lizette's hard work. We see that she's made amends with Alexis, who is there on set, as well as Chino, who is there with the kids. The video takes place at Coney Island. So we just see a lot of footage of them on the beach and then at the, I guess, what is that, the fairgrounds. The song, Try a Little Tenderness, sung by the Barrio Boys, who actually play the Mendendez brothers in this film, is being performed by them in front of the rides and over a montage of shots showing Chino and Lisette dancing together, then them on the train, with their kids sleeping, coming home from Coney Island. The last shot ends on the Wonder Wheel at Coney Island, which is lit up um, with pink neon letters. The film ends after all with a happy ending. But I like how there was the inference of some serious soul searching and work that had to be done in order for the Linares the to save their marriage. I think this was a very ambitious and groundbreaking film. As I mentioned earlier, just dealing with all of 
the subject matter from showing Afro-Latino culture to colorism to the LGBTQ plus subject matter. This might be one of the few films made in the 90s with a predominantly Latino cast. Um, and in general, there just were great performances by Lauren Velez, who went on to star in many TV shows and films. I remember her most from her role in New York Undercover myself. That's probably my favorite. But you also had Reno, Rita Moreno starring, which that alone makes this film legendary. There aren't too many directors who can say they had an EGOT in one of their films, after all. Jesse Borrego and John Seda gave outstanding performances as well. Jesse Borrego, as I mentioned before, has starred in Fame, the TV show Fame, 24, and Dexter. And John Seda has appeared in films such as, um, he was in Selena, he's done a lot of TV roles. Um, one, uh, one such role, he was in Chicago PD. Also, Thomas Melly, the actor that played Little Chino, was, he was so good in his role. Really impressive for a young child. I couldn't find much information on him, except that he appeared in Prison Song, which is another film directed by Darnell Martin. But yeah, he gave a very powerful, powerful performance in this film. I feel like it's such a shame that since this film was released, Darnell Martin hasn't had the opportunities to build a bigger catalog of work directing feature films as some of her male counterparts have had, you know, especially with her making such um, a great debut film. We've missed out, but alas, she set the stage for many black women to come after her and maybe now that they're starting to be an awakening awakening to how important and powerful the voices of black women filmmakers are darnell martin will bless us with even more classics such as this one so that about sums up everything I want to say about I Like It Like That. You can find it on streaming services for those who haven't seen it and still set through all of my spoilers. And even if you have seen it, I think now is such a good time just to revisit this film. I think it I think it'll bring back fun memories for you. And I can't end this podcast episode without giving my opinion 
on what's the best version of the song I like it like that and I have to say I prefer the blackout all-stars version that's my generation's rendition but obviously you have to give a big shout out to Pete Rodriguez because he's the original and that's that's definitely um a great version of the song as well and then obviously cardi b you have to give a shout out to cardi b with the most recent version as well i hope pete enjoys royalties from all of them so that's all for this episode of blase blah film chat. Until next time.